Welcome back to another episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. My name's Sina and I love following the journey of other young entrepreneurs. Now, before we jump into this episode, I want to tell you guys quickly about why we haven't posted for the last two weeks. I've started this podcast two and a half years ago and I've been posting weekly ever since then. So for about two years, obviously I've taken breaks during Christmas, but I've been incredibly you know, consistent with it, as you guys know. Haven't missed a single week apart from the Christmas periods. But two weeks ago, it didn't feel right to me to post. And subsequently, the week after, it didn't feel right for me to post as well. And this is the first week that we've posted uh, for the last two weeks. The reason why, as many of you guys know, I'm originally from Iran. And there's a situation happening at the moment there that's incredibly complicated. This isn't a political podcast whatsoever, but I needed to step away from the podcast as a sign that I'm respecting the situation. And it is in my mind, of course. I am thinking about it a lot. And so that's why it didn't feel right for me to continue everything as normal. Given the situation in my home country is not normal whatsoever. And I wanted to have that absence and show, I guess, solidarity with what's happening and a respect of what's happening. If you don't know what's happening in Iran, it's an incredibly heartbreaking story. And I highly encourage you guys to, you know, Google it, research what's going on, speak to people, speak to me if you need to, um, just message me, my DMs are open. Share the story about what's happening, show, you know, share awareness, because this is an incredibly complicated, incredibly heartbreaking story of what's happening. So jump into this episode and we'll jump back into this season because I know you guys enjoy this podcast and I love recording it, of course, but those two weeks had to be for me to show solidarity with what's going on, show respect and show that, you know, my, my heart is there. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being patient in those two week period. And let's jump into the episode. Hey, Spencer, how are you? I'm living my best life, sir. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm very, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a very cool story that you have. And not a lot of entrepreneurship stories start the way that you all started. You started with injury. Yeah, it was, uh, I think you're right in saying that not a lot of people start because my mind was quite unique in the fact that uh, I had never had the dream of being in business or being an entrepreneur at all. In fact, my whole life was built around basketball. Uh, I loved basketball. I, that was, I lived and breathed basketball. And um, you're exactly right. When I was 15 years old, just a few days before I turned 16, I shattered my ankle, broke it in six places, dislocated it. The bone was coming out of the skin. I mean, it looked like something out of a horror movie, to be completely honest with you. And, um, you know, that that really ended up in, you know, as bad of and traumatic as an experience it was, um, you know, it ended up kind of pushing me in the direction of getting into business and specifically real estate because I was sitting there all day and, you know, my whole life was filled up with basketball. Now I couldn't play basketball. And so one thing led to another. My mom uh, would come in and she told me one day that her dream was to own her own home. We always rented growing up. And yeah, one thing led to another and started reading real estate books and realized like, oh, this, you can make some money doing this. This is kind of interesting. And, and yeah, so you're, 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 you're exactly right. It, it often takes those moments of, I guess, solitude and I guess a break from normal life that actually spurs, you know, those moments where you you think more creative, you think, you know, life kind of stops still and you think about where you want to go next. And I think your your instance there happened it, with, with injury, but with a lot of other people, it, with, it happened with the pandemic, obviously, where people slowed down and then people really pivoted into different areas where they wanted to go into. And I thought, yeah, it's very interesting. So your that that started out from your mum wanting to own a house. 
and then you learn about real estate. Uh, you said like one thing led to another. So what did, what eventually happened? I once I got healthy, I, I started. So I started reading books and kind of watching YouTube videos. And you know, this was a time where there's a lot less information online than there is now. You look on on YouTube for real estate investing videos, and it was like ten percent of the videos that are you know coming out daily now were, were coming out that. And so I just started consuming as much as I could there. And then you know started. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad was one of the first books I ever read, and and you know some other real estate kind of basic finance books. And then eventually I get healthy. I get my driver's license and I start attending these little real estate meetup groups. Um, and I would go in there and it's like, I would be like this kid. And I actually have pictures of me that they took of me wearing like my Letterman's varsity high school basketball jacket, you know, and like talking to these guys on like suits. Like it was kind of, it was kind of funny to be honest with you. And part of that, and there's actually a lesson that part of that, I did that on purpose was because I wanted to stand out because people would come up to me and they'd be like, who the hell are you? Like, why are you wearing this varsity jacket? Why are you 17 and at this event with a bunch of 40-year-olds? And it got me in the door at a lot of places. But eventually what ended up happening was I um, just started meeting some people, learned about this uh, real estate strategy called bird dogging, which is really, really basic. I'm not going to go into it now because we'll go on this whole long rant, but it's really basic strategy to get started in real estate. Started doing that. And in high school, I was making you know a few grand a month, you know, basically doing this. Uh, and I, you know when you're making a few grand a month and you're in, you know, you're 17 and in, in, in school, it's like, you know, you feel like you're like Elon Musk or something. So, you know, yeah. And I just kept studying real estate at, at 18. I got my real estate license, which means I could be a realtor. I could represent people and all that. Realized very, very quickly that I did not want to do that because it just was not my style of things. But by around this time, I, I had compiled so much information on from online that I had learned about real estate. So every little strategy that I, I could find, again, at that time, um, I had in this notebook and I show up one day to one of these real estate meetup groups. At this time, I'm 19 now. So it's been three years of studying and learning and making some money, but nothing crazy. And I go into this little, you know, rinky dink, you know, real estate meetup with like 15 people in like this back room of like a hotel, you know, and uh, this guy goes in front of the room. And he starts talking about this concept, making money by giving money away. And, um, you know, I, frankly, I didn't really believe him because that sounds completely ridiculous, number one. And number two is, um, you know, I had done all the research. I knew all the real estate strategies. What are you talking about, sir? This is not a real thing. And I started drilling him with questions and he had an answer for all of it. And finally, you know, he was a guest speaker. I went to the host of this real estate club who's, um, you know, uh, was a mentor of mine and now my, my business partner, David. And I asked him, I said, David, why would you have this guy here? This guy's a scammer. This is not a good guy for to have at your club. This is not real, da, da, da. And he looked at me, he said, Spencer, what are you talking about? I, I've done this before. And then my mind was blown because I was like, this, there's no way. You know, that was that was the very beginnings of, of my career. So. so so talk about that. So he said you can make money by giving money away. What does that what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So it's so funny because I, I love saying that because I always get the same question. What the heck does that mean? And uh, it's, it's really what essentially it is, is finding money, lost money that the government is holding on to, and then giving that money back to peop the, the people that it's owed to. So right now in the United States alone, there's $100 billion in lost money. That's just literally the government is just sitting on. That's actually owed to uh, people that live in America. 10% of people in America right now are owed money. That if you just give them back their money, you can collect a finder's fee, 10, 20, 30%. Um, and it's funny, while we were, um, you know, I, I know you're in the UK and I thought it would be fun. So I actually looked this up. Uh, in the UK right now, 
I'll read this to you. In 1999, the Financial Times reported a sea of unclaimed assets sloshing around the financial system, very conservatively estimated to be worth 77 billion euros in just, in just the UK, right? So this is not just a US problem or a Canada problem. This is a, you know, developed country problem that's, that's happening right now. And um, I figured out that, hey, you can capitalize from it. So in the UK, you said around 77 billion pounds is just like, stagnant is well not stagnant people are actually investing it but it's actually owed to certain individuals so i guess my question is like firstly before we get into like the whole finder's fee or like how you identify it before we get into all of that why are they owed that money that's a great question so there's many different ways why someone may or may not be owed money one of the biggest ways the way i originally learned it was through real estate and so uh essentially here in the united states there's this term called a foreclosure which you in other countries they have, but there's different terms for it. It's essentially when you have a, a loan on, on a home that you've purchased, you're making payments, but for whatever reason, you stop making the payments. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you know some huge expense comes up. Whatever the case is, you stop making payments. Well, the bank, you know, I don't know about you guys, at least wherever you live, but here in the, here in the US, banks are not in the business of lending out money and then not getting a return. Right. Obviously, they, they need to see the return on, on their rental. Oh, yeah. Right? Basically, a financial institution. They, they, that's the way. Exactly. Yeah. So what ends up happening is they come in and they do a foreclosure. And this is, again, where the term might be different in your country. But basically, what that means is they come in and they take ownership of that home, right, again. And then they go and they sell it at auction. And, you know, if we make the numbers really easy, let's say you owe the bank 100000 and they sell it at auction for 200000 well, they can't actually take the whole 200,000. They can only take the, the 100,000 that they're owed. That second 100,000 is owed back to the person that was foreclosed on. But the big, the big disconnect is that banks are not in the business of finding people to give away money. You know, they're in the business of lending out money to make interest on. And there's also a huge liability. If they give that money to the wrong person, you know, they're liable for that entire amount. So what ends up happening is they pass that money off to the government where it sits there and where, you know, the people who really need it, who just lost their home, you know, probably for some very devastating financial reason, um, are now, you know, probably living at home with their parents trying to figure out their life that could have an extra $100,000 to restart everything. And so that was the foundation of what I learned this on. But then it goes even deeper than that, because it's not just a real estate thing. What surplus funds really is, it's just when someone's owed money. And, you know, for whatever reason, the person that's you know, going to be paying them can't find that person. There could be, there's millions of reasons why that, that, that could happen. One of them that I mentioned to you off air is my grandmother with her insurance claim. So she had an insurance claim from the, from the 1960s. I believe it was 1963 or 1964. She was at $7,000 from this insurance company. That insurance company, for whatever reason, wasn't able to get a hold of her, but they owed her the money. They can't keep the money. So they sent it to the government and it's been sitting there for 50, 60 years. You know, until a couple of years ago, we just recovered it. So that's what creates such a massive problem is there's so many ways that money can even get there in the first place. You know, it's it's quite large. It's probably, there's probably new ways of the money not being claimed every day as well, given how complex the financial institutions are getting, right? Like with new regulation, new laws, new diff new layers that are introduced. So I can completely see that. And obviously in the UK, it happens as well. It's not just in North America. So Spencer, tell me, I guess, this, this concept obviously existed and you understood that it existed out there, like people had money that they were owed, but the government or you know the banks weren't, weren't giving it to them because they weren't in the business of doing that. So how, how does someone such as yourself see that and say, oh, I could find that and then also take a finder's fee from you know, recouping that and giving it to the, right, the, to the relevant person? 
because you're taking on event like essentially the governments as well as the big banks you have to somehow get into the right sort of i don't know conversations with them right yeah it's it's funny because it's uh it's a lot simpler than it, it sounds because the, the the thing is with governments and big banks is they want to appear like they're in your best interest they want to appear that way now obviously you know everyone has their own opinion personally I don't think that's always the case, right? But they want to appear that way. And so legally speaking, they can't, at least in the United States, they can't keep the money. They can't take this money and be like, no, 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 this is our money now because it wasn't, you know, you never you never claimed it. They can't do that in most places. There are some places where they can, which is a whole other story. But in most places, they cannot. However, they so they can appear like they, they have your best interest. However, the reality is um, what they can keep is the interest that that money accrues. So if that money is accruing interest, it's invested in some low yield bond, and you know we're talking about billions of dollars. Like we're not talking about like a few hundred bucks, right? Any money that that generates, they can keep as tax revenue in mo- in many in many jurisdictions, right? So even though uh, on the appearance, oh yeah, they have your best, they're here ready for you to claim. Even if you call some of these places, they'll even say to you straight up, oh well, you know they shouldn't work with people like you because they can just come claim it themselves. Well, if it was that easy for people to do, why is there a hundred billion dollars missing? Like, you know, yeah. So, um, but the thing is, once you understand the secrets of how things work, you realize it's actually quite simple, right? So here in the United States, how the process usually works is you, you, you know, whatever state that you want to close deals in, let's say California, um, you, you know, you just go to, you, you go to that state's website, you fill out a really simple one page form that of course they, you know, make you dig up to find that that's the thing is they make it hard to find. It's a simple one page, but you have to go through these like links and yeah, yeah I got you. Exactly. I got you. That's one of the tricks that they use. And and then once you fill out that form, you submit it in, you wait two, three days, they approve it. They say, cool, you're registered to do this. And you can start. And then, you know, they they give you a list. You just download a list of people and it's millions of people that are owed money in just California. You call them, you say they're owed money, you help them recover their money. You know, one of the other tricks while we're on the, the um, point of how these, you know, at least in the United States, how the states make it difficult is they'll make it, they'll make it, you know, a little bit more difficult to register. But then what they'll do is, um, instead of just giving you a downloadable list of, hey, here, here's a spreadsheet of people that you can call. What they do is they're like, hey, no, you need to pay us $7 because we have to mail you a CD-ROM with the spreadsheet on it. It's like, dude, it's 2022. Dude. <laughs> yeah, I can just download it in five seconds. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's these little things that they do to try to make it difficult. But then a lot of times you talk to them, oh, no, no, dude, we make it easy. They can come claim it anytime they want. It's like, no, that's not really the case. But that's just like one element of it. So that that element of like, yeah, you've got the names of people that are owed money. What's the next bit of like, I guess, yeah, how do you how do you actually get that money? Is it is it is that they make that difficult as well? Like just identifying that it's there, but then actually getting it might be a different issue. Yeah. So they um well, I'll say this. We so we've basically identified that the surplus fund process comes down into three steps. The first is to actually find the people that are owed money. And that's everything we just talked about, registering in the state, giving them, a, you know, a, getting their contact information, getting the leads, all that. So that, that, that part's pretty easy to do. It, it doesn't take very long. Then you're connecting with them. So either you're calling them, you're texting them, emailing them, Facebook, whatever it takes, right? Maybe you have a VA do some of that, which is what we do for a lot of our, our, our companies and, and customers. Um, so that's the connect process. And then the last step, which you just brought up is the collect process. So it's, Hey, now we have someone, we have their name, we have their info. We've talked to them. They said that, yes, they want help with this. We've identified their claim, all of those things. Now, all we need to do is actually collect the money. And once again, they, they need to have the appearance that it looks easy to do and it's simple to do. 
And this is why it's funny. A lot of a lot of times, people that are skeptical of this, their two biggest skepticisms are: well, a is this even real? It sounds kind of crazy. Like you're telling me I'm out of Yeah, I mean, even now, like listening to you, it still doesn't seem real right. to me. <laughs> um, and and B, another one that we get a lot from students is like, well, you know, what happens if they say they're just going to go do it on their own? And it's like they could have done it their whole time. The money's been there for 25 years. Why, why haven't they done it? Oh, well, they didn't know about it, but now they can do it on their own. It's like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because again, they want to make it appear like it's, oh, you can just do it on your own. But the reality is it's a lot more complicated than that. Now, the beautiful thing is, again, once you understand it at a reasonable level, you understand that there's really only ever a few pieces of paper that you need to submit to actually get something done. The problem is, is that for someone that's trying to claim their own money, it might take them a year or two years to figure that out, right? Is it worth giving up 10% of their money, 15% of their money to save two years? Probably, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. I think anyone listening that's in the UK, like this is a very, I don't know, I, I haven't heard of any businesses in this space. So, I mean, you said the numbers are there. There's like 77 billion sloshing around. So if if like someone can find a way of, connecting that money that pot of pot of gold to to someone um you know, you know rightful owner then yeah by all means like that's a really good business that you could build right there pretty easily Absolutely. so did you start this business so you obviously had the idea you 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 found out how to do it what was the sort of next step how did you attain your first sort of set of customers in regards to now let me ask you because we're talking about kind of two different businesses now are we talking about the original like me actually doing surplus funds or are we talking about when i realized that there's a massive opening and the fact that the reason why i didn't know surplus funds existed was because no one was talking about this online and i and i started to create the online portion of the company are you referring to that i was referring to the first step i guess before before uh, well yeah it was before there was even an online presence so for me when i when i first started surplus funds i mean you know, it's funny, Alex Hermosi has talked a lot about this recently. It's been really big in the online business you know, world, which is, hey, you know, make an amazing offer and a lot of things kind of fall in line. And so when I first started, it was like, well, how can you beat an offer? It's like, here, you're, you're at 50 grand. Would you like the money? <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that, that's the offer. Hey, would you like 50 grand? You don't have to do anything other than sign a few pieces of paper. I'll take care of everything else. I mean, that's, that's, that's the offer. So it wasn't really that difficult. Um, you know, the only part that was a little difficult for me was, the mental side, because I'm, I'm quite naturally um, very much an introvert, especially at that time, I didn't have as much confidence. And so making calls like that, it really scared me. Um, and I had some bad experiences prior with real estate where I would push myself to do it. I always you know, said, hey, look, I'm going to do my best, but I didn't look forward to it. And I really got really nervous. But eventually um, with this, I realized I was like, you know, a lot of times when I was calling real estate people, I'm calling people that are in the middle of foreclosure, that are losing their home, they just lost their job their whole world's crashing down and I'm asking them to buy their house, you know, or whatever the situation was. Right. But with this, I'm calling people who've already gone through all that, you know, or haven't gone through anything. They're just owed money. They don't even know about. And I'm just giving them good news, you know? And, and I realized that like, Hey, you know, worst case scenarios, I call these people and I have really fun conversations where I give them good news and you know, I don't make any money, but best case scenario is I get to help a bunch of people get a bunch of money they don't even know about. Um, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I need to I need to ask you this question though, Spencer, because I get, I know with everyone listening as well, I get so many messages on Instagram, on LinkedIn, direct email. A lot of people, you know, messaging me with a lot of offers that seem f like way too good to be true. And, and often they are too good to be true. I mean, there's, there's scams at the end of the day. So how do people, when you, when you do phone them up or email them or whatever, how do you get over that barrier of like, no, we're not a scam, we're legit? 
Yeah, and, and this is the single greatest question that every single person that comes through any of our training that is like, man, I'm thinking about doing surplus funds that they have. Because truly, like, it is pretty much the only objection that you will ever really see, you know, with a with this type of business. When I first talked to Spencer about what he does and the sort of business that he does, I couldn't believe, you know, the premise of it. And it's a really interesting one because when he calls up to tell people that they own money, it seems way too good to be true. Which is very interesting for a business owner when you're trying to sell something because of course you're trying to make it so that it's a no-brainer for them to, to buy into it. But I guess the, the tightrope is, if it is a no-brainer, maybe it is too good to be true. So the question that I had for Spencer is how do you convince people very, very quickly, especially when cold calling, that it's not a scam. And this can be applicable to so many of you guys' businesses because when you're trying to build a proposition, you're obviously trying to make it so that it is a no-brainer. But of course, some people might still feel like it's a scam if it is too good to be true, if it feels like it's too good to be true. So Spencer's advice here is very, very good. However, before we go on with the episode, I want to tell you guys about the podcast sponsor, Zencaster. I know so many guys have businesses and so many of you guys are trying to get more customers through marketing channels. Advertising using social media has seen a sharp decrease in success due to privacy. Think of all those times you're discussing a certain topic and then you're retargeted to buy something that's related to it. Really, really creepy in my opinion. <laughs> but an alternative stream of advertising that many brands don't even think about is podcast advertising. 67% of listeners remember brands and 63% make a purchasing decision after hearing them on a podcast. But the difficulty is, how do you find a podcast to, you know, actually advertise on? That's where Zencaster's creator network actually comes in because they connect brands to podcasters and their mission is to create a podcast advertising as easy and accessible to business owners as Google and Facebook. So the way that it works is that Zencaster actually matches you with the best podcasts. So your product gets to the right audience and you can maximize your advertising campaign budget. They have tons of podcasts in their network. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. If you're thinking about podcast advertising as, you know, either a new stream or diversifying your existing, you know, advertising budget, then definitely do check them out. The link is in the show notes. Now back on with the show. So there's a couple different strategies that that we that we use. The first one is we have some information. Like you, you don't just have the information. Like okay, you know John Smith is owed five grand. Like it's not just that broad. You have a little bit of information where, where the money's from. Sometimes you have information on when the money was originally owed to them, and so you can relay that to them to get them to potentially remember. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I do remember that. Now that solves some of it. Because then they're like, okay, it makes sense why I would be owed money, but am I actually owed money? They still have a little bit of that question. And so that's where we employ the second strategy, which is just build a lot of credibility and, and trust. You know, the, the reality is, I think a lot of the mistakes that people make, not just in surplus funds, but in general with businesses, they think they're short term. You know, like, at least on the, the online portion of business, it's like people, they, they want to build a website that generates them hundreds of thousands of dollars a month or millions of dollars a month or however, whatever their goal is. And they want to do that in a week, having never built a website before. And they're just like, I'm going to build this perfect website. Like, it's, that's very difficult to do. And it takes time. And most people that come to your website the first time, they're not going to buy. They don't even know who you are. So it's the same thing here. So it might not be just one conversation. It might be like, hey, man, listen, this is what I do for work. This is the second strategy we employ. I'm registered with the state of whatever. I'm registered in this country to do this. Me and my team, referencing to what our, you know, our team has done, me and my team have recovered you know, uh, close to a quarter of a billion dollars with, uh, you know, lost money over the last few years. 
And, you know, we talk to people just like you every single day. And I understand that this might be unbelievable. I can send you over some of our testimonials. I can send you over some, you know, proof that this, that we do this every single day. And I'm calling you because we got your information from the state government saying that you're owed money. And I'd like to help you recover that. The reason why I asked that question, Spencer, is because I, a lot of business, but the businesses that do extremely well is when you can find that sweet spot where everyone wins. And it's very difficult to find, but in a situation like where you're, that, it sounds like you, you've hit that spot. But the downside of that spot that you're, that you're functioning in is a lot of people think it's too good to be true. And then like, I guess, being dismissive because of that. So I was asking more because I know a lot of people listening might not get into what you're doing right now, but they might be offering a similar thing to businesses, to consumers, where it seems too good to be true. And it's kind of getting over that step of selling, you know, building that credibility, building that trust very, very quickly. Um, especially when it's over the phone as well. Like it's very difficult to, to do that when they don't even know who you are, right? So do you, apart from the advice you just gave, like, do you think this is translatable across other businesses as well? Yeah, I mean, the the specific, uh, you know, phrasing that we say obviously is not, but the 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 bigger principles of what we do, absolutely, right? Like, first of all, you mentioned building trust and proof and credibility. I mean, how do you do that, right? Well, the first thing is, how do you conduct, like, how are you speaking to someone on the phone? Right. Well, if you're like not certain in what you're saying and you're, you know, uh, I'm not sure, uh, you know, pro- you're, you're probably owed this much instead of, hey, you're owed this much. Right. Like that little, those little differences, they add up to creating a lot less certainty on the call, which if you're not certain about what you're saying, how are they going to be certain? Especially when you're making a claim like what we're saying, hey, you're owed money. Do you want that money? Right. So a lot of it comes from that. But then outside of how you conduct yourself on whether it be a call or whatever form of marketing where you're making the offer. Uh, above and beyond that, you know, then you've got, um, you know, how much proof are you showing them, right? Like if you're an entrepreneur and you're not doing everything you can to A, obviously get your client's results, but B, capture those results as effectively as humanly possible and show those to as many people that are on the fence as humanly possible, you are doing yourself a massive disservice because those are the people that, you know, I don't want to listen. I'm a great salesperson. I'm a great marketer. I do not want to be reliant on just me saying something's good for the for the rest of my business. I want to be reliant on the thousands of customers that I've helped do this thing that all say it's amazing. You know? So those are the two biggest like core principles to that that I think are huge that no matter what business you're in that you can certainly use. And it, and it's far more scalable than you having a conversation every single time, right? That's that's another key thing. It's like, yeah, you don't want to rely on yourself because as well, it's not it's not scalable whatsoever. And if you want to build a, a longer term business, it shouldn't depend on you as much, uh, right? So I think that's actually an amazing message to end on because it's a, it's a global principle that goes across so many different businesses. It goes across every business, in my opinion. So Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I guess last question before we wrap up, actually, what is what is next for Surplus Fund? Yeah, well, next for us, we've been building out some very uh, interesting kind of elements. You know, one of the, principles that might help your audience as well is, you know, a lot of times you end up with this, a situation where, yeah, hey, your business is doing really well, but to get to the next level, you have to do something you don't really want to do. So for us, what that was, was build out a software company that makes finding the leads of people owed money, find their contact information, you know, way faster, literally breaking down the time from, you know, potentially weeks before you get their CD from whatever state to, you know, a few clicks of a button. 
right? And so that's something we've been working on, but I've never built a software company before. So I've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and it's been really difficult the last year and a half. And we're getting to the point now where that's coming out. So very soon you'll be able to literally click a few buttons, have billions of dollars worth of leads at your fingertips and, um, you know, have their information in five seconds, you know? So that's, that's an internal tool that you're yeah. building for yourselves to automate certain, certain processes. Exactly. That's right. Amazing. Amazing. Incredible. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having you on. How can people stay in touch with you and what you're doing? Yeah, man. I mean, I would say just check out, uh, check out my YouTube channel, Spencer J Van. Check out my Instagram, Spencer J Van. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to post as much on there as, as I can. And, um, yeah. Thank you so much again, man, for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure we'll chat very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. If you did enjoy, please be sure to leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. But more importantly, if you don't do that, I strongly urge you to research about Iran, show solidarity, show respect, and also share the message about what's going on. That's probably my biggest urge to you guys. If you don't want to, you know, rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything like that, this matter is so much more important. And so, yeah, I strongly urge you, to, you guys to do that and spread the word. So thanks so much for listening again to this episode, and I'll catch you in the next one.